नमस्ते नमस्कारम वेलकम टू अनदर शाइनी न्यू खूनी शॉटी आई एम बैक टू डे विद अनदर विंटेज क्राइम दिस टाइम फ्रॉम 1926 एंड आई नो विंटेज इज काइंड ऑफ बिकमिंग द थीम फॉर दीस शॉटीज बट इट्स नॉट ऑन पर्पस आई स्वेयर नेक्स्ट वीक विल प्रोबेबली बी डिफरेंट एनीवे सो टुडेज स्टोरी रीड्स आउट लाइक बॉलीवुड मूवी स्क्रिप्ट द काइंड विद समन लाइक राम गोपाल वर्मा माइट बुचर But in the hands of a Shujit Sarkar, maybe it could become a compelling thriller. Actually, a movie was made immediately after this crime, and it was called Kulin Kanta. It came out in 1926. It was a silent film, and I couldn't find anywhere to watch it, so I couldn't tell you how it is. But if there's a film buff out there among our audience, and if you can find the film or even the poster, please, please share with the class. Okay. Anyway, without further ado, let's just dive into the case. So our story begins on a crisp January morning, uh, January twelfth, nineteen twenty-five, to be precise, near Hanging Gardens on Malabar Hill in Mumbai. Among the several cars on the busy promenade, one had a couple inside it: Mumtaz and Abdul. Mumtaz and Abdul were deeply in love. Mumtaz was pregnant. Besides them, there were other people in the car: a driver, a cleaner, and Abdul's manager. So Abdul was both rich and influential. He was a businessman and a member of the Bombay Municipal Council. Overall, life was perfect in that moment for Mumtaz and Abdul. But all that was about to change in a few short minutes. As they drove up to Gibbs Road from Kemp's Corner. and i know to everyone else this sounds like a word salad but those in mumbai will probably know as they drove up to gibbs road from kemp's corner they noticed another car catching up with them it was a red maxwell with six or seven people inside it mumtaz was suddenly filled with dread the maxwell bumped into their car forcing them to stop the next few minutes were a blur the men were abusing loudly they had surrounded abdul's car from all sides and a couple of them had climbed up on the footboard of their car they were all heavily armed with kukris regular knives and pistols a kukri is a special kind of indian and nepali's knife with a curved blade from the beginning it is clear that mumtaz was the intended target of the attackers they were yelling at abdul to let go of her she was dragged out first thing but Mumtaz was feisty. She screamed and fought back, and as she was fighting, the men stabbed her face savagely with a knife, disfiguring her. She had three knife wounds on her forehead. Abdul had been trying to save her, and in the middle of the commotion, shots were fired. This, along with the screams of the struggling Mumtaz, drew the attention of three English military officers who were driving a few meters away. The men had been golfing and were heading towards the Taj Mahal hotel for evening drinks. Lieutenant Seagurt was driving the car and by his side were two of his military comrades, Lieutenant Batley and Lieutenant Stephen. Seagurt, armed with nothing else but a golf club, immediately stopped his car, jumped out and rushed in to save Mumtaz. Him and the other officers fought bravely for a woman they didn't even know. Seagurt was shot and sustained knife wounds 
but he managed to pull the bleeding Mumtaz to his car on the other side of the road. The rest of the officers soon overpowered the attackers and they were handed over to the police. Everyone was rushed to the hospital. Abdul had been shot, Mumtaz was badly wounded and the officers had sustained injuries as well. Unfortunately, however, Abdul or Abdul Qadir Bawla, which was his full name, did not survive. He succumbed to his injuries. He died protecting the love of his life, Mumtaz, and she would live to tell the tale. And what a sordid tale it would turn out to be. So obviously the question is, who was Mumtaz? And why had she been targeted in such a vicious manner? To answer this question, we need to go back 10 years before this incident. That's where Mumtaz's story begins. Mumtaz Begum was born and raised in the Deccan state of Hyderabad. There are some news reports that say that um, that says that this was Amritsar, but I'm going with what was recorded during the eventual trial. So her mother was a singer and performer, and so Mumtaz was raised in the same tradition right from childhood. When she was around 10 or 11 years old, her mother took her to the princely state of Indore for the first time. Okay, so just a small segue here. I'm sure Indians already understand this, but those who are not familiar with Indian history, uh, for them, I just want to take a minute to explain the concept of princely state. This is important to understand uh, the trial as well. So as the British were expanding their hold on India, a revolt occurred in the year 1857. While that was suppressed, it was kind of a big deal and it was uh, enough for the British to want to prevent such an uprising in the future, which is why they wanted to address the reasons behind the uprising or at least the address the low-hanging fruit. I mean, they had no intention of giving up their colonialist designs, which had been the main reason behind the revolt, but... Uh, one of the low-hanging fruits had been the resentment among the local rulers against the British takeover of their territories. So Indians at the time were peppered with many small autonomous kingdoms or fiefdoms, whatever you like to call them. Some were more influential, richer and bigger than the others. And if the British would just leave them alone to rule their respective subjects, they were willing to surrender their suzerainty to the British crown which basically meant that the British could decide things like foreign affairs or take tri tributes, grant pensions and allowances to the rulers or even, depending on the state, interfere with internal politics. But as long as the rulers had their kingdom and their titles and privileges and as long as they got to rule over their subjects, they were fine with the British rule. So this is significant from a legal point of view and we'll come to this later when we discuss the trial. Okay, so let's come back to Mumtaz. Now, Mumtaz is 10 or 11 years old when she came to the princely state of Indore, which was under the rule of the Holkar dynasty at this time. The Holkars were a prominent royal family dating back to the 1730s. The most famous Holkar ruler, in fact, was a badass queen called Ahilya Bai Holkar. And you can read about her if you like to read about badass queens and you're generally interested in Indian history. Anyway, I digress again. So, Mumtaz is brought to the court of the Holkar ruler of the time, Maharaj Tukoji Rao Holkar III. So Mumtaz was introduced to the court as basically a singing girl, like her mother before her. She is brought to visit him two more times after this initial visit. 
on the third visit she becomes his concubine yeah and i would like to make it very clear that she was no more than 11 years old at this point in fact from the sound of it mumtaz became tokoji's favorite so this was common for royal families at this time they married for the sake of political expediency especially the sons who were supposed to succeed to the throne but then kept multiple mistresses in their zinana zinana was the women's quarters it housed the queens the princesses their mistresses the servants midwives etc most zinanas were closely guarded and the women inside rarely had any freedom when mumtaz came to the holkers she was barely 11 and the maharaja would have been in his early 20s and make no mistake mumtaz is young even by the standards of this time so feel free to be disgusted by this there is no reason to dismiss this as a cultural thing or you know a product of its time during a trial mumtaz was ambivalent about her own family's role in the matter there is absolutely no doubt that her mother had pushed her into it she was the one who had introduced mumtaz to the indore court for the first 3 years of her time in indore mumtaz's family had been given a lavish bungalow to live in with three or four servants at their disposal mumtaz was also given money and jewelry in return for her sexual favors in fact the money was directly given to the mother her mother was basically drawing a salary Later she was moved into the indoor zinana with the rest of the women of the royal household. During the entire time Mumtaz was there, she maintained that she was unhappy. She said that Tokoji had basically forced himself on her from the very beginning of the court and court relationship. And while in court in 1925 she had to produce evidence for this, we know now that children cannot consent to sex. she wasn't even a teenager at this time there is no reason to doubt her story because 6 years before the incident on malabar hill her mother had filed a complaint stating that mumtaz had been forcibly taken to indore so i guess this would be around the time she had been told to shift from the house to the indore zinana it is possible that she had tried to escape uh, once before mumtaz's life was micromanaged by tokoji he controlled what she ate what she could wear who she could meet needless to say she was extremely isolated she even accompanied tokoji and his queen on a trip to england in 1921 when she came back mumtaz was pregnant mumtaz was only 13 years old at this time but this wasn't even the worst part while recounting her story in court Mumtaz testified that the Indore Zinana obviously at the behest of the Maharaja had killed her baby. She was even made to lie about her age to the doctor who had attended to her during the pregnancy. Basically she had to say that she was 17 and not 13. Like I said, the fact that an adult man in his 20s had such a young concubine is not normal even for this time. this was exploitative and outrageous on every level after she lost her child mumtaz decided to take matters into her own hands she contacted the commissioner of police in mumbai and the viceroy for those who don't know the viceroy was the highest british authority in india basically the representative of the crown now take a moment to appreciate the gumption on this 13 year old girl 
who is illiterate, cannot read or understand a word of English, has suffered all kinds of emotional, psychological and sexual abuse, gotten pregnant at 13, lost her baby, has been controlled like a puppet, but is determined to take charge of her life. If this isn't bravery, I don't know what is. During this time, Mumtaz was travelling to Masuri from Indore under the supervision of Tokoji. He had made sure that she wouldn't be left alone during the entire trip. But somehow, she managed to escape. She gave her handlers the slip and got off the train when they were in Delhi. What she did after this is not very clear. According to some accounts, she probably went back to her family. How she managed to evade Tokoji and his men is a complete mystery. Tokoji, it seems, spared no effort in getting her back. He sent his men to her parents' house. Uh, his messenger, at first, told a very sorry tale of a Maharaja pining for his beloved and how he had not stopped crying ever since Mumtaz had left him. Ugh, awful. But when Mumtaz did not agree, they threatened her and told her parents that she would be taken to Indore one way or another. When this didn't work, Tokoji threatened to issue a warrant for her arrest, claiming that she was on the run because she had stolen jewellery from the Holkers. So, this is one of the reasons why we discussed the arrangement between princely states and British India. For legal purposes, Indore was a foreign territory. It was governed by a separate law from Bombay, which was part of the Bombay Presidency, that is, British India. Basically, this means that if the warrant fell through, Mumtaz would be extradited to Indore. She would have no choice. But Mumtaz had decided that she would rather die than go back. She was determined. So determined, in fact, that she had approached Khurshid Nariman, a prominent Bombay lawyer, to discuss her legal options. Fun fact, Khurshid Nariman is the guy Mumbai's landmark Nariman Point is named after. So we can all see how savvy this girl is. I'm not exactly sure when she met him, uh, but at any rate, she could not have been more than 21 or 22 years of age. So in 1924, she met Abdul Qadir Bawla through her relatives, and he became a whole world. They were not formally married, but he took her under his protection. He was kind to her. He respected her. And Mumtaz loved him with all her heart. Her family members said that the two were inseparable. He had even been helping her out with her legal issues. And more than anything else, I think the one thing that works in Babla's favour is that he's not a goddamn pedophile like Tukoji. Disgusting. Anyway, Mumtaz, meanwhile, spent a lot of time looking over her shoulder because she knew that the Holkers would be trying to track her. She had not forgotten the threats. And she was right. On the night of 12th January 1925, Mumtaz and Abdul had spent a beautiful evening driving around in Bombay. They had driven to Apollo Bandar, then Kolaba, Chapati, Mahalakshmi Battery, through Vokeshwar, and then Hanging Gardens. They had been close to the Hanging Gardens when Tokoji's henchmen had got to them. And we go right back to the horrible attack in, at the beginning of the episode. 
At the trial, Mumtaz and the English officers gave crucial testimony to identify the attackers. They were all connected to Indore State. One was a Risaldar, that is, a military commander of a cavalry unit. Uh, another was a driver. Uh, a third was a Mankari, which is a kind of nobleman at the Maharaja's court. And they had all been surveilling Mumtaz and Abdul since October 1924, so for a few months. It is clear that they had no personal connection to the crime and they could only have been acting on the orders of the Maharaja in Indore, their master. This is further cemented by the fact that no expense was spared in the defence of these men. Muhammad Ali Jinnah was one of the foremost lawyers in India at the time and he was on their defence team. I mean, this was as high profile as it gets. And yes, like most cases we covered, this too was a media circus. Even after the trial ended, the press kept hounding Mumtaz for a very long time. But now the British government was in a bind. There was a real issue about whether to hold a trial for the ruler of Indore or not. After all, a man was dead. A woman was grievously injured. British officers had been wounded. There was a lot of public outcry from all quarters, British and Indian alike. Those who advocated reforms and progress were demanding that no one should be above the law and that the Maharaja of Indore, Maharaja he may be, but he had to be brought to trial. The men who had been convicted after all were his employees and the mastermind had to be brought to book. Once again, this is where the distinction between princely states and British India is important from a legal standpoint. The crime had been committed in Bombay so the Maharaja would have to be extradited to stand trial in Bombay. It would also impact the relationship between princely states and the British, which I'm guessing the latter were not too eager to damage. After all, the princely states were the bulwark of British stronghold over India. They were allies. The Maharaja had also not taken any of the insinuations lying down. The Holkar court published open letters, press releases. It categorically denied any association with the crime. They attacked Mumtaz's character. They said that her allegations were wild theories and nothing else. Although Tukoji was spooked enough to consult formidable lawyers of the time. For example, Tej Bahadur Sapru. A decision was finally reached in February 1926. I'm guessing after a lot of back-channel negotiations. Tukoji declared that he would abdicate his throne in favour of his son. And I quote, On the understanding that no further inquiry shall be made into my alleged connection with the Malabar Hill tragedy. Unquote. This is as far an admission of guilt you would get from a royal in those times. Or actually even in these times. If the Me Too movement has taught me anything, it is this. Powerful men will get away with sexual crimes almost 90% of the time. Even when they are caught, they will retreat into their comfy hidey holes for a few days and then emerge good as new, ready for their next juicy paycheck. And they are able to do this because there is an entire machinery in place to help protect them. Because imperialist, colonialist and in today's context, capitalist structures depend on them. Ugh, anyway, sorry I got carried away, but you know it's true. And you want to know why? Because Tukoji would go to America and come back with a pretty American wife, his third. 
Mumtaz, on the other hand, would also go to America to try her luck in Hollywood. But that's the last anyone would ever hear from her again. Beyond the Malabar Hill murder case, nobody really knows what happened to her. And Mumtaz is lost to history. And that is the story of the Malabar Hill murder case. We hope you're doing well. We are getting so much love from you guys and we are so grateful. Please rate and review us, tell a friend about us and we will see you next week with another cool story. Bye!